Good morning, Highland Park. That dog and cat one threw you for a loop, didn't it? You didn't see that one coming. Uh, to find that picture, I know the team had just Googled ugliest dog, ugliest cat, and they're the ones. So I hope when people Google ugliest human being, I don't show up or anybody else. Have that poor dog and cat um, being labeled like that on Google is awful. So, hey, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at Highland Park. It's really good to be with you. You've got a sermon page in the bulletin. You may want to open that up as we, as we study today from Luke chapter 10. We're in the series on grace, and we're defining grace in the simple way. Grace is undeserved kindness. It can be given by God. It is given by God. It can be given by you and by others, and it's something that is critical and central to the entire gospel message. I was thinking about grace a little bit like this, that grace can almost picture a cottage, a stone cottage in the middle of a driving snowstorm. And yet all of this chaos and coldness and danger outside, and yet this stone cottage just sits there with the fire on the inside, and the walls aren't moving, and the wind isn't getting in, that's a little bit of a picture of grace. It is safety. It is comfort. It is good. It is home. It is protection for you and for the people in your life. And so the question I want to ask today is, how can we experience the warmth of grace I mean, knowing it and receiving it and giving it, even in the midst of storms and challenges and temptations, and specifically today, in the midst of any circumstance, is grace really greater than your circumstances? And so go ahead, if you have not done so, turn to Luke chapter 10, and let me just kind of give you the context here and set up the story. Jesus is approached by a wise teacher of the law, smart uh, knowledge-filled person who comes to him and says, teacher, how can we be saved? What must we do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when somebody says that to a preacher, it's kind of like putting a ball on a tee and handing them the bat, usually. But this person may be coming with some different motives here other than just an honest question. And so Jesus responds basically by saying, well, you're a smart guy, tell me. And the guy says, well, you know, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, those are the two greatest commandments. Do that and you will live. And then the text says, but he wanted to justify himself. Ah, so there is a different motive at play here. And he asked Jesus, well, who really is my neighbor? Okay, now if you ask a question like that, you're the same kind of person who asks a question of like, but is it really my chore to do? Is it really my responsibility to do this job at work? Is it really my role to take care of this person? Do I really have to do that? Does the Bible really say that I have to? Have you heard that before? Have you said those things before? That's this guy saying, but who really is my neighbor? Isn't my neighbor just maybe one house to the right and one house to the left, and that's it, and I don't have to love anybody else? Well, as Jesus so often does, he tells a story that's been reverberating for 2,000 years. One of these days, I'm going to do an entire sermon series 
on this parable. I, I think it's so profound, and Jesus' words are so wise, and there's so much to learn from this, and people have been reading it and digesting it and trying to apply it, and that's what we're going to try to do today. And so Luke chapter 10, I'm going to begin in verse 30 when Jesus tells this parable, this story, with a major point to it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Pause for one moment. If you were listening to Jesus tell this story, and you heard the word priest or Levite, you're thinking hero. You're thinking good guy, the person who's going to save the day, all right? And if you heard the word Samaritan, you're thinking bad guy, the villain, the one who's going to do something terrible. So just be thinking about that when you hear this, because Jesus turns everything in their world upside down. Verse 32, so too, a Levite, so a good guy, a hero of the story, you would think, when he came to the place and saw him, also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, one of those Samaritans, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So Jesus takes this story and the people you think are going to be the heroes end up the villains, and the person you think is going to be the villain ends up the hero. I imagine a lot of jaws were on the ground because they could not believe that the story went this way. It was incomprehensible that the story could go this way. And I was thinking about this story, thinking about there's five kind of figures or characters or groups of characters that you would often find in a courtroom or in a movie, or a good book. And the first group of characters I want to talk about are the perpetrators, the robbers. And they, they come and they beat this man to within an inch of his life. They take everything he's got and they leave him for dead. What kind of person would do that? And I really kind of would like to know, what kind of person would do that? What, what had happened in their life to leave them, put them in this point? Were, were they just doing what they had seen done by their family? Did they perhaps not have a family? Were they a product of injustice and just trying to survive? Did they have a good family and leave all of that behind because they were just rebellious? We don't know. We don't know much more about them, but I do know this, that we believe that grace is greater than any circumstance and that grace could even intervene in their lives too. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of a guy named Saul. His name would be changed to Paul. He was kind of doing some stuff like this to persecute Christians. But we don't know if grace would ever intervene in their lives. It's just a story. And we know these guys uh, did a terrible, sinful, awful thing. 
The next character in the story is the victim. And there's something I want you to note about the victim in this story, that Jesus never blames the victim. Jesus could have said, well, he should have known better. I mean, what was he doing walking down that road at that time of day all by himself without a sword with all of, I mean, what was he thinking? We do that sometimes, right? We're like, well, that victim kind of had it coming. And Jesus might say, yeah, so do you, buddy. You kind of got it coming. But God's grace does something different to the person who kind of has it coming. God's grace is so big, it doesn't assign blame to the victim. It actually just goes and cares for the victim. And this victim, we don't know a whole lot more about their life, but we can say something positive about the victim at least. At least the victim accepted help. I mean, you're thinking, well, of course the victim accepted help. Oh, really? So every time you've needed help, you've accepted it? Because sometimes, at least figuratively, we've been bleeding out. And somebody has come and said, let me help you. And you've said, no, I'm fine. Just leave me alone. Just let me be. Let me be here. I'm good. I got this. Mm. We tend to do that an awful lot. But instead, Jesus says, accept the help. When it comes to you, I want to read a story. I left my book down here. I got to grab it. There's this book written by Brant Hansen called Unoffendable. And if you get offended easily or you struggle with hanging on to offense, I just want to recommend this book to you. It'd be a great Christmas present. Uh, it is a remarkable read. But he tells a funny story that has a point to it about accepting help. And I'm just going to read it because his words are, are good and humorous and he gets the point across. He writes this. I bought a new car, first time ever. Still not sure it was a good idea, but we did it. It gets 50 miles per gallon because it's a diesel, which is unfortunate because I filled it with regular gas. <laughs> and that's unfortunate because that kind of destroys all the fuel lines and stuff. And that means it's going to cost seven grand to fix it, which I did not have, so... I rode my bike, carrying extra stuff to work, going uphill, and managed to injure my back, rendering me bedridden for several days and in excruciating pain. So, I'm an idiot. <laughs> he goes on to talk about how he, he was so frustrated, and then he got a call from Volkswagen. And Volkswagen said, we, we need to tell you the new cost to fix your car. There's a new number that you need to know about. So what's the number? Zero. What? Is it under my warranty? Nope, it's not under your warranty. Why are you doing this? The, the guy said, the mechanic said, it wasn't my call, but Volkswagen, the head office, said they wanted to take care of it for you. I hope you'll be a longtime customer. You pay zero. He said, well, what about the towing? Zero taxes, zero. And then they detailed the car. They gave him a free oil change, zero. Couldn't believe it. And part of him was super, super happy. But part of him was not elated. And he thought, well, why am I not elated? I should be elated, not just kind of happy. And he began to realize something. He felt like he needed to pay for it a little more. When he felt like maybe 
it, it wasn't right that that debt should just be forgiven. He felt like maybe he needed to suffer a little bit more, maybe a few more days in bed, maybe a little bit more of a check, and then he would be in control of making it right. As it was, somebody else was in control of making it right. He said, I'm, I'm a little bit like a baseball player who struck out four times in the championship game, the World Series Game 7, struck out four times. My team's behind, but runners are on the bases, and I'm on deck. And in the baseball world, they would say he has a chance to redeem himself. If he can get to the plate, he hits a home run, he will redeem himself and those four strikeouts. But while he's on deck, the person in front of him hits a home run. They win the game. They win the championship. Everyone goes to the locker room, and everyone is celebrating but him. Ever feel like that? Sometimes we have a hard time accepting grace. But the victim in the story to his credit, receives the grace he needs. And if you need God's grace, let me tell you that your predicament is way worse than the guy left for dead with nothing on the side of the road. It's even worse. And God comes to offer you his free grace. There's another character in the story, two characters really that make up this group, and I'm going to call them the complicit if you look up the legal definition of complicit, it is someone who aids or embeds or helps somebody else who commits a crime. And the Levite and the priest are not complicit in the original crime. They, they did not rob this person. But the moment they saw this person in need and refused to help, they become, according to Scripture, complicit in the injustice, complicit in the suffering complicit in the pain. Of all the other people in this story, who are they most like? Well, they're most like the robbers, the perpetrators, because both the complicit, the priests, these religious types that should be the heroes, both them and the robbers uh, view the victim the same way. They, that neither group sees the humanity or the dignity and the image of God in that other person, in that victim. It's easier to walk by on the other side of the road. Did you catch that? They both, it says, walk by on the other side of the road. So that way they don't get a really good look at what's happening. Oh, they saw it a little bit, but they didn't see it completely. I bet you there's been a time where you've cared for somebody or some group of people, and you've been talking to other people, and you've heard those other people be like, well, I don't really care about that person. That's not that big of a deal. They're fine. There's no big deal. They'll be all right. But you have a compassion for this person or this group of people. And you're saying, like, it is a big deal. They're hurting. They're wounded. And if you would just put my shoes on for one day and walk where I walk instead of going on the other side of the road, you'd be tripping over the bodies that are lined up there that need your help. So quit walking on the other side of the road and walk in my shoes for a moment. You've probably felt like that. It's easy to say, ah, it's not that bad of a situation. And the worst thing that we can do is say, ah, it's not that bad without actually going and walking on that side of the road too and then deciding whether it might be that bad or not. A couple weeks ago, I was part of a, a dinner uh, that the city of Tulsa, the mayor's office, put on called Resilient Tulsa. And the idea is to just get Tulsans talking to each other to maybe uh, solve some issues and just bring about some fellowship and camaraderie. Of course, it's not done under a spiritual umbrella. But I signed up because I thought, man, this is 
close to my heart, bringing people together, and it's a great way for me just to meet, you know, some random people. And so I had a dinner, there were six of us, and they kind of match you up. Uh, so there's diversity, people from different backgrounds, and our group was definitely very diverse uh, culturally and politically and age-wise and all of that. It was a great group of people. We had a good time together and got to be friends that evening and were able to visit. But God really taught me something that's going to stay with me for a long time. Uh, we were sharing just different stories about ourselves, and there uh, was a lady who had come, and she had worked in uh, a very well-known, sen- or her husband had worked in a, a senator's office, very well-known senator's office, for over a decade in D.C. And so they'd been in D.C. for a long time. They'd been, you know, right in the midst of all of the po- political stuff there. And they had finally decided as a couple uh, that they were ready for a change of pace, and they moved to Tulsa. Uh, had, didn't really have any roots here, but they came here. And uh, somebody... Uh, said, well, have you figured out the traffic around Tulsa? And she was like, hello, I'm from D.C. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. I can go wherever I want. Um, and, uh, and they said, well, how's your experience been? And she said, it's really been pretty good. You know, people have been pretty kind to us. She said, but we've only had one bad experience. And then she kind of started to go on, and somebody's like, do you mind telling us what your bad experience was? And she said, okay. Oh, she said, we, my husband and I were... Um, at a restaurant, kind of sitting around a bar where other people could hear you visiting, and uh, he was telling somebody what he had done, and the senator he had worked for, you know, for over a decade. And across the bar, somebody overheard this, and they cursed at them, saying, drain the swamp. And she said, it was really weird that they would try to be mean to us, but she said, we've actually got that phrase thrown in our face a lot. Um, and she said, if you hadn't ever thought about it, you would have no idea how hurtful that is to me. Because what I hear is, you're a swamp creature, and you're less than, and, and you're good for nothing. And she said, I get it. There's corruption in D.C., and term limits are probably a good idea. And, and she said, I kind of get all of that. But what I also know is, I know real people who are doing their best and working pretty hard, and when they hear that phrase, it's really hurtful to them as people. And man, I have just been thinking about that, and it's not a phrase I was going around screaming to people or anything, but at the same time, it's not a phrase I'd ever thought about being really hurtful to another human being. And so I just started asking the question to myself, are there things that I say that I'm not thinking are being hurtful to somebody, but they actually might really be? And I've been thinking of things and running that filter. Have I ever said this to any group of people or another group of people or another person where I think I'm just saying something that has a point to it or might be a good thing in some way, but if I really thought about it, it's actually hurtful to someone. And so here's what that means for me. The moment the light bulb comes on and I'm like, oh, that, that lady wasn't being overly sensitive. That, that phrase just felt hurtful. The moment I realized that, I become complicit if I keep throwing that phrase in her face, right? And so what does it mean to follow Jesus in this? It means I sacrifice that phrase, right? It means I'm a little more concerned about her than uh, whatever phrase it might be. And there could be a hundred different phrases for a hundred different times. It's just a lesson I learned. I wanted to share it with you because I've been thinking about it a bunch, 
And as the group was talking, they said, I mean, do you think there's really hope for Tulsa? Do you think that we can do better? And, and uh, people were sharing. When it got to be my turn, I said, I really am sorry, but I am a preacher. And so I'm not going to preach at you, but I just have to tell you one thing I always think about. And I told them the story of Peter and how Peter had a hard time believing that you did not have to follow the Jewish customs in order to be a Christian. He kind of kept placing that on the Gentiles. And I said, you know, God had to go to him with miraculous things, with a vision, with Cornelius, this other person. And then even later in Galatians 2, Paul had to confront him. It was like God had to keep going him, but eventually his heart changed. And I believe that the human being's heart is capable of being changed by grace and by goodness. It's almost like a phone call will come right to you and God will say, change all of this. I'm sorry, I tried so hard to ignore that and that one caught me. <laughs> Anytime I hear anything, I try to look the other way and just move on, I'm sorry. I don't know who it was, I'm not gonna look. There's, a, uh... <laughs> There's another character and it's the good or the good Samaritan. And when people heard the Samaritan would have been the hero, I mean, their stomachs would have turned. And think in just in your life of a person or a group of people that you find most distasteful. Distasteful. I mean, you're like, ugh, I have a hard time with them. I'm really frustrating with them. If Jesus is telling you this story, that's who the hero is. It, it, I mean, I think in any culture, Jesus would find the person that you're most frustrated with, the person you, you have the hardest time with, and Jesus would make that person the hero of this story if he was telling it to you. And so switch it around with whatever you need to do. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's unlikely. But the Samaritan comes, and the Samaritan doesn't just give a bandage, does he? He doesn't say, well, here's a Band-Aid. Hope you get to feeling better. No, he treats the needs, and then puts the guy on his own ride, the donkey. And so the Samaritan has to walk uh, all the way. And here's really what the Samaritan does. He takes his agenda. I'm sure he was a busy guy. He was going somewhere. And he takes his agenda and he shoves it aside. And now this broken, beat-up man becomes his agenda. Priority number one is take care of this guy. And that's what it means to be the good Samaritan, that you take whatever your agenda was and you say, okay, my agenda maybe isn't all that important right now. I'm going to take care of this person. And he takes him to an innkeeper and he, and he stays there, cleans him up, uh, takes care of him. And then the next day, he goes to the innkeeper and he says, okay, I got to leave now, but here's money for the room and I'll be back by this way. If there's anything else that comes up, you take care of this man and I'll come pay for it. Don't let money be a hindrance to taking care of this man. So he leaves him in good hands. I mean, and it says, he doesn't ask him to take care of him. He tells him, you take care of him, okay? I'll pay for it. You take care of him. And he, he moves along. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. In other words, grace comes and it changes us. It leads us to do stuff like this. Leonce Crump says, grace isn't the freedom to do whatever you want. Grace is the freedom to actually do what God wants. Some of you feel like you're a slave to sin, and it's trapping you and trapping you and tripping you and tripping you, and God comes and he says, I'm giving you the grace to no longer be in that lifestyle. 
I want to rescue you from your sin and from your hurt and from that circumstance so that you can do the right thing, the loving thing, and the good thing. We talked about the cycle of grace because we have to understand it, and then we have to accept it, and then we have to give it. And if we don't do any of those three, we don't really get it. We don't really have it. Because the moment we give grace is the moment we understand it better than we ever understood it. And so if you're not giving grace, you're not really understanding grace. And if you're not really understanding grace, you're not really accepting grace. And if you're not accepting grace, I guarantee you, you're not giving grace to others. It's a cycle that helps us grow in this thing called grace. The last character is the helper or the innkeeper. And I was talking to Jacob Crosser about grace, and he brought up something. He said, you know, grace doesn't demand attention. And we were talking how when you give grace to someone, you never have to be in the spotlight. And this innkeeper, we only get a sentence or two from the innkeeper. We don't know anything else about the innkeeper other than he was kind of a role player to giving grace to someone, to helping someone. And God may put you in that situation a lot. You won't be in the spotlight. Nobody else will hear about it. You won't get a parable named after you, the parable of the good innkeeper. Mm -mm. No, but his role was every bit as important as anybody as the good Samaritan because he, he took what the Samaritan had done and continued in that grace. It doesn't need to draw attention to itself. In John 116, there's this phrase that says, grace upon grace. In other words, God gives grace like stacked up, piled up over and over and over. God keeps giving grace. And it says, how do we receive that grace? In the next verse, it says, through Jesus who came in grace and truth. And those are two words that belong together, grace and truth. And in the book of John, that word grace shows up a couple times in the first chapter. It never shows up again in the rest of the whole gospel of John. But the word truth shows up about 55 times in the book of John. So what does that mean? Well, those two words belong together, but in the book of John, we kind of get this picture that grace is how you live out truth, and truth is how you live out grace, that the response to grace is truth, that when people see Jesus and that Jesus forgives them, they're welcome to live in his truth. And that if you don't understand God's grace in chapter 1, you don't understand God's truth in the rest of the chapters. That without grace, we have no truth. And without the truth, we don't have grace. It's this beautiful thing together. But it seems like for most people coming to God, grace is what will come first. So give grace to people and it will allow you to also give them truth. So how can we experience the warmth of grace? knowing it and receiving it and giving it, even in the midst of storms? Well, two simple ways, through God's love and through our neighbor's love. That's how we really experience the warmth of grace. Through God's love, 1 John 4, 19 says, we loved because he first loved. And I think that we could say, we graced because he first graced. We felt we gave hope because he first gave hope. It starts with God and then trickles out of us onto others, that God loves so we can love. God gave grace so we can give grace. But it's also through our neighbors. And you might be that neighbor to somebody else that anytime you read the gospel, you'll see how Jesus' love for people drew them to him. 
And the same is true for the first church, and the same is true today, that you can love your neighbor and be a picture of God's grace, that the first time they will see God's grace is through your grace in their life. The first time they will hear and get a picture of who Jesus really is is by how you actually treat them and how you forgive them, even when they, they maybe never deserved it. Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Elizabeth and Frank Morris had a son named Ted. Ted was about 20. And he had gone one evening to be with some friends. And when he was driving home, another young man about the same age named Tommy, who had been drinking, was leaving a party. And Tommy was drunk three times over the legal limit. And Tommy hit Ted's car, and Ted was killed. And Elizabeth and Frank were left without a child. And they went through all of the uh, sorrow and bitterness and anger that parents would go through. And uh, the court proceedings kept getting kicked back and kicked back. And when they got to court, uh, uh, Tommy uh, showed up and pleaded innocent, which really frustrated Frank and Elizabeth because there was no way he was innocent. But everything just kept kept getting kicked down the road and they were frustrated by all of that. Two years went by before a decision was finally handed down that Tommy would go on probation. He would serve no time. Frank and Elizabeth were livid. And Elizabeth was even almost fantasizing about revenge to get back what, to give what Tommy deserved. And there was only one problem with her plan. She was a believer. And God's grace started to keep tapping, tap at her soul. But grace, but grace is greater than your circumstance. But what about grace, Elizabeth? And she began to listen to that and she and Frank decided that they were going to call Tommy and try to offer forgiveness. And they did that, and before long, Tommy had a second DUI, and this time he did some time. While he was in jail, they went and visited him often. They began to build a real genuine friendship with him. When he got out of jail, they started inviting him over, their son's killer, to their house for dinner. And they shared the gospel with him. They realized that Tommy came from a very difficult background, an unfair background. He had been addicted to alcohol for a very long time, and nobody had helped. And finally, somebody loved him and cared for him. And late one night, the three of them got in the car, and they drove to Frank and Elizabeth's church, and they got in the baptistry where Frank baptized his son's killer. And now every Sunday, they go to church together, Tommy comes over and has lunch afterwards, and he calls them every day of his life. It's not possible, except for grace. Step one of grace would be trying to let go of that hurt. Step two would be trying to, to forgive that person who gave you the hurt. That's a deeper grace. And step three would be a reconciliation. Step three isn't possible in every scenario but it's beautiful when it is. My son was telling me about a song I had to listen to because the words were so on target. And a rapper named Lecrae, who's a believer and phenomenal uh, writer, and Tony Evans wrote and sang this, to love you more, God, to trust you more, to know I'm yours, oh, but for grace. You say, but I was abused. He's got greater grace. You say, but I was misused, but he gives greater grace. But you don't understand, 
I've been addicted for years. Yeah, but think of all the years of your addiction. Add them together, and the verse still says, he gives greater grace. In a moment, we're going to pray, and if you've never received God's grace, we welcome you to come to the front or to the sides here, and people will be glad to meet you and pray with you and talk with you, and maybe you'll be like Tommy who ends up in this baptistry before the night is done. But some of you feel like the robbers. You're in need of God's grace because of what you've done. Some of you feel like the complicit. You're in need of God's grace. And some of you feel like the blood-soaked victim. And I'm telling you, in any circumstance, God's grace is greater. And so we want to offer that to you. John Wee says, there's more grace in God than sin in people. And I promise you this, there's more grace in God than what sin you have in you. If you come to Jesus, God's grace is greater. Would you stand and let me pray? God, we thank you for your great grace in our lives. And regardless of who we are in this story, we need your grace and we ask for it. We thank you for giving it to us. In Jesus' name, amen.